I'd like to welcome everyone to the Florence Weinberg Show. Frank McKay here with the author of 15 books, the latest being Before the Alamo. She is the subject of a documentary. She was the subject of a, a long-running uh, radio series, and now she's the host of her own show, the author of 15 books. How about that? And the latest is, uh, like I said, before the Alamo, it's terrific. We spoke about it before, but I don't think we, we heard much about the process and certainly what's been going on with, with her life uh, since, uh, you know, since summer, since, uh, you know, the beginning of summer. Uh, Frank McKay here, much more important, importantly, Dr. Florence Byham Weinberg. Doc, how are you? I'm doing okay, thank you. Uh, how are you, Frank? Well, I'm, I'm doing well. And uh, we're just talking a little bit off mic, and I can't believe you're not exhausted. I was exhausted just just thinking about what you were going through, <laughs> and you've got to be exhausted, uh, you know, dealing with uh, publishing and uh, and and chasing down uh, the numbers and the different things like that. Uh, what a uh, what a project! It's not just writing the book. There's a lot more to it than that. Yes, well. Of course, I was until June. I was uh, just writing and minding my own business, keeping uh, keeping up with Facebook and doing odd things that most retired people do. And in June, since I hadn't been selling uh, over the COVID uh, uh, duration, I mean, once COVID start, started, I'd stopped marketing virtually. And so I hadn't been selling anything, but I decided I would hire an advertising agency to help me out. So uh, on June June 15th, uh, Salem Surround, uh, which is a national company advertising, and it also has a radio program that does uh, interviews and podcasts and things like that, uh, they began publicizing my books, but they wanted to publicize particularly the books that pertain to the Southwest. And they would uh, do that in the greater San Antonio area, thinking that uh, they could um, blitz San Antonio with ads. And so on the 15th, that began. And I chose uh, five books, uh, one of them not yet published, but in the works. And the ones that had been published already were Apache, Lance, Franciscan Cross, Seven Cities of Mud, Sonora Moonlight, Sonora Wind, and one that had not yet been published was Before the Alamo that Frank just mentioned a minute ago. So I contacted my editor and at the publisher, which was Twilight Times Books, that had published all of my novels to date, and I asked her if she would publish before the Alamo. And she said no. And in fact, I've decided to return all nine titles to you. <laughs> and I, I was shocked. I didn't ask her why. And I never asked her why for some reason. Uh, but uh, she insisted. I said, oh, but uh, before the Alamo should be a good seller because it's about San Antonio, and uh, uh, I'm publishing it in, um, in San Antonio, well, marketed in San Antonio, and I had just signed up with these people called Salem Surround, and she said, no, 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 I'm giving your titles back on the 7th of July, <laughs> and that was that. I mean, she once she makes her mind up, that's the end of it. So on the 7th of July, here came her letter telling me that I now owned all my titles and could do with them as I pleased. And I resolved immediately that I would republish those books, all nine of them. But in particular, I would concentrate on the ones that had to do with the Southwest, obviously, since those were the ones that were being blitzed by <laughs> Salem's around. So I set to work then to find out how to republish books. I had never published a book myself, and I had to learn from scratch. And I found out that the first step is to go to Bowker. Bowker owns and sells all of the ISBN numbers, and the ISBN numbers are the, the numbers that uh, identify a book worldwide. 
and you will find them on the back of the title page in every legitimately published book in this country or anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So um, I went to Bowker then and, uh, and bought... I had to buy 10 ISBN numbers because I intended to publish all of them, republish all of them in paperback and ebook form. So I had to have two, uh, two ISBN numbers for each book. So I paid for that. And then I had to go to the, the uh, firm that was going to print the books. And that firm is Ingram Spark. And Ingram Spark, actually, I considered Amazon. Amazon publishes uh, books for self-publishers all the time. They do not charge up front, but they, uh, uh, they take uh, a portion of what you earn from every book. Every book you earn, Amazon gets a little nibble out of it. Uh, and so they make up um, a whole lot. If you sell a lot, they make a big deal off of your books. Ingram Spark just uh, asked you to pay them up front, and they will not take money off of you uh, if you sell a big bunch of books. So I chose Ingram Spark. And the other thing is that Amazon does not market the books uh, other than to itself. And Ingram Spark markets the books all over the place to, to Amazon, to Barnes and Noble, and to all other bookstores, and and so on. So, um, so I chose them, and then I had to learn their process, which is quite detailed. Uh, it, uh, of course, they ask you what the title and author, who the title, uh, who the author is, and uh, and who the publisher is. And if you're self-publishing, they have you make up a uh, a name for the new publisher. So I am now Maywood House. That is the publisher of all the, all my books. And uh, Ingram asked me to base the name of the publisher on my own name. So it could have been, for instance, F.M. Weinberg Company or something like that, but that was so dull I thought I would base, base it on my middle name, which is May. So it's Maywood House which I think sounds better yeah. <laughs> and sounds serious as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you have to do all those preliminaries, and then, of course, you have to furnish a summary of the book so that they know whether it's por pornography or not, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, key words so that people looking up uh, something like Texas history or, uh, or French history, 16th century, or something like that, uh, we'll find the book. And uh, so I did all that. And then the third step after Bowker and Ingram Spark is finding a designer to design the cover illustration. And for the books that had already been published, so four of them, I had used, or rather uh, Twilight Times books had used uh, a designer by the name of Artie Scott. Artie was for Ardice, which is an actual name, several people. Uh, if you look up Ardice, you'll find it. Uh, but it's a rare name, so she goes by Artie. Uh, and she had done those, all those books, and so I simply asked her if she could do them over again. And she has done that. And, of course, I paid her for each book, a hefty fee for both uh, both the exterior of the book, so the, the cover illustration, and that was for both e-book and paperback. And for paperback only, the blurb on the back, uh, on the back cover. Mm. So uh, publishing books is an expensive business. Uh, but I fortunately uh, was able to swing that, and uh, uh, so I I have already published five books, and one of them is a brand new book, and for that brand new book I got a brand new designer who did the both the cover and the interior of the book, and it came out looking very beautiful. Uh, Frank has seen it, seen the cover. I don't know whether you bought the book, but he's yeah. certainly seen that good, that beautiful cover. She does a good job, uh, a really good job. 
Yeah, and her name is Tamian Woods, if anyone listening would like a fine designer. Actually, I recommend both of these designers, Artie Scott and Tamian Woods. Uh, but I especially like Tamian's work. So, I, and I'm also uh, a book that I had already written but had not published. It, the title of that book is The Choice, and it is set in 16th century France. Uh, and I'm having Tamian do that uh, that illustration for the cover as well as the interior also. So that's coming out pretty soon. But that's not uh, not no concern of. Uh, of Salem surround. They're just doing the ones that have to do with uh, with Texas, New Mexico, and surrounds, uh, and old Mexico in part. Okay, so um, I think I'm going to read to you then uh, it, uh, from, from the new book. And I'm going to give you a little background so you'll know what's going on. There are uh, there are very few main characters. There is the father of the family, whose name is Andres Altamirano. And since this is before the Alamo, all the characters speak Spanish. And so there's a lot of Spanish in in the, the book, of course, because people, uh, I'll drop a few words in Spanish and then translate them um, as I go along. <laughs> but all the names... Are in Spanish are Spanish names, of course, because those were the uh, entire population of uh, of San Antonio and of Texas altogether at that time. The book begins in 1814, and Andres Altamirano was the eldest son of a pioneer family, and he is just coming back from exile. Uh, the uh, the rebellion against Spain, when uh, Mexico decided it no longer wanted to be a colony of Spain, it wanted to be independent, uh, uh, there was a movement that rose up and, uh, and started fighting for independence. And Spain, of course, fought back with the local army, the royalist army, uh, because Spain had a whole hierarchy of governor, lieutenant governor, and so forth in, in Mexico running things. <coughs> there were two problems with being governed by Spain in those days. <coughs> and that is, oh, my voice is going, I'm afraid. That's okay. Yeah, you want a glass of water in the meanwhile? Or I'll kind of remind well, everyone. Well, um, I just cleared my throat. I think go. I'm better. It'll probably go back. <laughs> but uh, uh, anyway, um, uh, two big problems of being governed by Spain in the uh, uh, 17th, 18th centuries, uh, and that was that any major decision had to be sent back to Spain for uh, for a decision from the king and then come back across the Atlantic. And the trip by sailing ship across to from Mexico to Spain and back again uh, might take a year. So a burning problem in Mexico could would have to wait a year to be answered or to be remedied. That was one major problem. And the other one was the social hierarchy. Uh, the, the people who came over from Spain, so Spaniards were at the top, uh, considered the nobility of Mexico. Their children were called Creoles, and they were uh, second class. And then third class would be the Mestizos, uh, the ones who were mixed Indian and Spanish blood. And then on the bottom would be uh, Spanish, uh, Indian, and African blood. And they were, they were called Coyotes. Uh, coyotes and uh, and uh, so uh, this and this was a rigid social system that uh, to some extent continues to this very day especially in Mexico um, but uh, so San Antonio was of course settled by uh, Spaniards 
and then they had children, and so the second the second group were Creoles. And Andres Altamirano, who's the father of this family, uh, and who was a soldier in the Royalist Army, was the eldest son, and he followed his father doing the honorable thing, which was to serve in the army, which was at the time only the Royalist Army. But meanwhile, the rebellion had started up, and an army of 1,800 soldiers had risen up uh, in Texas and uh, was met by the Royalist Army in a battle on the Medina River, and it's simply known as the Battle of the Medina River. And the general who commanded the Royalist Army was Joaquin de Arredondo. And Arredondo didn't take prisoners. He killed everybody. If he captured uh, the, some of the enemy, he shot them, executed them. And what happened was he moved in. He, he uh, wiped out that 1,800-man army, left their corpses unburied. And to this day, <laughs> uh, actually, the, the battlefield got lost. Nobody knows where it is. And right now, archaeologists are searching for the, the uh, location of the Battle of the Medina River. So it's in the news right now. But, uh, so, uh, Andres Altamirano fought in the Royalist Army and was forced to fire upon his friends and neighbors from San Antonio because most of, uh, of San Antonians, including, including his own uh, uh, family <laughs> and, and close relatives, were in the rebel, on the rebel side. So, uh, but he got into bad graces with General Arredondo, who found out that his family was uh, rebel sympathizers, uh, were rebel sympathizers, and uh, so he decommissioned uh, Andres and exiled him. And, uh, Andres was fearful for his life, since Arredondo was busy killing people, and so he took refuge with the family servant, who was a pure-blooded Otomi Indian that he had bought illegally because slavery was outlawed in Mexico, uh, had bought her as a slave and had brought her to San Antonio. And uh, anyway, he took uh, refuge with her and slept with her one night and then uh, left for uh, Mexico where he could hide. But he's coming back after nine months and uh, he finds out that he has a baby girl. And uh, the little baby girl is named Emilia, uh, Emilia Altamirano, and the mother's name is Maria. The wife, meanwhile, had taken refuge in New Orleans. A lot of the uh, rebel sympathizers had rushed off to uh, New Orleans when, when General Arredondo came to occupy Texas. And uh, that's where his wife is. Uh, but she's back in the excerpt I'm going to read for you. Uh, she's back, and uh, Emilia is about three or you know, three or four years old at this point. So here we go. Uh, I'm going to read, and you have some background to understand it. Emilia followed her mother when she went into the kitchen to prepare dinner. Maria gave her a wooden bowl and a handful of frijol beans to play with while she worked. An occasional glance assured her that her child was engrossed in spacing the beans around the upturned bowl. Uh, until she was uh, already in the dining room, Maria didn't notice that Emilia toddled behind her as she served the first course. Emilia stopped and stared at Carmen and Andres for a long time. Then she made for the handsome man in his uniform. Before he had seen her, she embraced one leg and looked up into his face. She pointed. Look, pretty man has hair on his lip. She smiled. What? Get away from me. He gave the child a shove with his leg, and she tumbled onto her bottom. 
her astonished face crumpling as she began to cry. Andres turned to Maria, who had rushed to pick up her daughter and quiet her. Get her out of here. I don't want that child loose in this house again. Maria's glare transfixed him with arrows of anger and contempt as she marched out with the sobbing Emilia in her arms. Carmen had watched the scene open-mouthed. Now she scowled at her husband. Whatever is wrong with you, Andres? How dare you treat a child in such a way? He lied. It must be the child of one of Arredondo's soldiers. Maria was here during the worst of the occupation, you know. He felt a load of guilt descend on his shoulders for defaming Maria and the child, but he simply could not let his wife know the truth. Carmen sat stiff and upright, her face rigid with disapproval. You surely can't blame Maria for what happened during that terrible time. I'm certain she was raped, poor woman. Be more considerate in the future. I'm disappointed in you. She rose and left the table. He sat on, bowed head resting on his hands, elbows on either side of the plate. Damn Maria anyway, he thought. She brought that brat in here to make trouble. In his heart of hearts, he knew that was also a lie. Okay, I'm going to stop and say that because of the social hierarchy that was in effect at the time, uh, Andres had decided when he visited Maria and uh, met the, the baby and actually took her to be baptized, when he came back from having the baby baptized, he baptized, he told her that he was not going to acknowledge the child because it would damage his social status. And so that's why uh, Carmen knows nothing about this baby because, of course, Maria and her, and her baby are living in a shack behind the house. They don't occupy the same house. So um, I'm going to read another uh, short um, segment when uh, wow, Amelia is Amelia is seven years old, more or less, at this point. Any questions, uh, Frank? Well, it, this... just, it, any questions I have would knock you off track, and I, I certainly don't want to do that. Uh, you know, uh, just just going back, uh, just, just uh, a moment. The the rebel, and again, not to get too uh, far off track, but the rebel army was uh was 1800 what was the loyalist army how how much larger was the loyalist army uh, it was a, a roughly uh, 2000 it wasn't that much bigger it was just but arredondo was a great technician and he had arranged the his his troops in a horseshoe form and then sent a dispatch of a few soldiers forward to attack the 1800 and then to retreat and the 1800 followed uh, them when they were retreating and came right in uh, into the horseshoe formation of the uh, royalist army and then they were caught in the crossfire and uh, slaughtered absolutely slaughtered yeah it's uh, you know that's it's pretty close uh, 1800 to to 2000 it was just a, a far better general uh, and uh, and a tactician as you as you put i let me uh, also ask you one other point and you got to pardon my ignorance you mentioned that the uh, the, the class of people were called Creoles, and uh, then you mentioned that uh, that uh, many of them ended up in New Orleans, and uh, you know I I would assume that that's where uh, where the the term uh, Creole came from, right? And uh, and the um, uh, the combination of uh, of the different uh, uh, mixes there, uh, and Creole is still a part of the culture of. Of yes. New Orleans, and, and just uh, correct me if uh, I'm Yeah, of Louisiana altogether, yes, yeah. right. Yeah, just fascinating. But go ahead, please please continue. Okay, so uh, Amelia has grown into a very... Actually, Maria is an interesting character. She's, his, she's drawn from a historical character. When I was doing my research in the uh, Alamo uh, Library and Archive, uh, I ran across a document telling about Maria, who was indeed uh, bought by one of the prominent families and enslaved by them. Um, and she was a, uh, 
uh, an Indian, Otomi Indian child who had been taken by a Spaniard uh, in Mexico and raised as his daughter. Uh, and so she knew Sp Spanish. She spoke Spanish, reasoned uh, in Spanish, had read. She could read and write and probably play the piano, and all kinds of graces that were proper to a young Spanish woman. But unfortunately, her adoptive father, um, uh, when she became uh, a woman, when she uh, blossomed forth, uh, he couldn't resist her her beauty, and so he uh, essentially raped her. And uh, then he uh, he was he blamed her for <laughs> as as men uh, often do, I think, blame the woman for uh, for her attraction. Uh, and he uh, sold her on the slave market, and that's how she came to be in San Antonio in the first place. Wow. So that she is an interesting character, of course, and she raises Amelia as she had been raised. So Amelia uh, is being; uh, she knows a lot. She's uh, knows how to be polite, and uh, and of course she, at the same time, is uh, being taught how to be a servant. So she knows how to serve at table and that sort of thing. But this is uh, she's a little young for that stage at this point. So here we go. Emilia paused in the middle of Main Plaza to squirt dust between her bare toes, delighting in the silky feel, the funny little geysers of dust. She inhaled mixed odors, cattle, horses, and human sweat from a man passing by with a spade over his shoulder. The driver of a team of oxen shouted for her to move out of the way. Unsurprised, Emilia stepped back, barely avoiding a fresh cow pile on one side and horse droppings on the other. Instead, she'd stepped on a sharp pebble, but she scarcely winced. Her feet were tough and well calloused. Sandals were for Sunday mass only. Legs of horses trotting past gave her intermittent, intermittent flashes of farmers' booze around the perimeter of the plaza, busy as usual with, with shoppers, filled with fresh farm produce, but no Manuela, no Jacinta. Surely her playmates should be there in their usual meeting place. She pictured them. Jacinta, like Amelia, seven, going on eight, was smaller than Amelia and wore her hair in two braids, with a parting dividing her head into halves. If Jacinta had two braids, why didn't she, why should she, Amelia, have only one down the middle of her back? Mama had explained, one takes half the time of two. Manuela, eight already, was too fat and didn't smile enough. You had to work to get her to smile. Ah, there, excuse me, there by the booth selling ears of fresh corn, she saw Jacinta, one braid in her mouth, her head hanging. What could be the matter? A quick glance in both directions, and she skipped across to the booth. Que pasa, Jacinta? What's wrong? Manuela's sick. Sick? How? She's got a headache and a fever, and she's throwing up. They think it might be serious. We'd better go and pray for her, Jacinta. You go. I'm tired of praying. The church, the biggest and grandest building in San Antonio, raised a tower to the sky across the plaza. Emilia trotted to the garden gate, its garden gate. Beyond it, the flowers, yellow zinnias and purple petunias, drooped in the midday sun, covered with dust and needing a drink. She entered the cool twilight of the church, listening to her soft footfalls as she moved closer to the altar rail and knelt in a pew on the right side. Surely prayers coming from there would be more powerful, would persuade God better, since they came from where the town's Hidalgos sat during Mass. She bowed her head over her clasped hands, but a black shadow made her jump. It left the sacristy and started across the sanctuary, the priest. Father Sambrano stopped and squinted, raising his hand to shade his eyes. 
He must be blinded by the light coming from the entrance door. He must be looking for her, kneeling just a few steps away. He made a noise like a growl, descended from the altar and strode to her side like a great black bird of prey, flapping in for a landing. You're on the wrong side of the church, brat. He had her ear, twisted it and pulled. Amelia batted at his hand. Ay, ay, you're hurting me. It hurt so much that she had to follow him. He pulled up, and she stood. Then he dragged her, stumbling along while he hauled her across the aisle and shoved her into a pew on the left side of the church. That is where you belong. Stay there, and don't forget this lesson. Her ear throbbed, and she felt it to see if he had pulled it off. She wiped at her tears, not as much from the pain as from the way she had been treated. But why, Padre Sambrano? His angry eyes and red face made him ugly, and the broken veins in his potato nose showed more than usual. The nose quivered. Because you're half Indian, a, a coyota, you have no right to, to use pews reserved for your betters. Your father should have taught you that. Emilia, still wiping at her tears, managed to choke out, My father? He stared down at her, eyebrows raised, red nose still twitching. Yes, your father, that proud lieutenant, Juan Andres Altamirano. Yeah. Pa, hentusa, rabble. He whirled and stalked to the altar, not looking back. Emilia could think of nothing to say to God about Manuela after that. Senor Juan Andres, her father? The priest must have made some mistake. Her twisted and aching ear and her face burning red with hurt and shame filled her mind while the strange business about Senor Juan Andres faded. She'd ask her mother about that later. For now, hurt became anger. He'd called her Coyota, Hentusa, rabble. Mama would hear about that, too. And that's the end of the selection. Wow. Just, uh, you know, it, it's riveting. It's just absolutely great. And, uh, it, you know, I just, I, you know, I, I know we spoke about, well, and we'll speak off, off mic on this, but I know we spoke about a treatment a while ago, and then we got sidetracked on on uh, some uh, some other work that you, you had done. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just it, it's just amazing to me that someone could write like this and, and be <laughs> relatively unknown, you know? I mean, uh, it, it's it, it just... It, what, what what talent you uh, you have there and it, you know like I always um, when I come across someone like you and uh, you know I always ask them do do you write with with it uh, with a a film in mind do you write with a a show in mind something on the screen do you have actors in mind do you have uh, people in mind that would uh, that would would play or do you do you write the old-fashioned way uh, where where it's just for the book? I'd have to believe that in, in anyone in our generation, your generation, my generation, would, would be writing visually at this point, right? And do you, uh, right. Do you find yourself um, wondering who would be the characters, who would be the actors <laughs> in, these, uh, in, these type of, uh, in these type of films? Actually, I haven't. I, I don't give that a thought. I'm. I'm always concentrating on, on how this in, in this instance how this child is going to be, going to develop. Yeah. Uh, the next thing, uh, the next adventure is uh, her finding someone to teach her to read, uh, because there were no formal schools at that time. Uh, there had been a school, and it uh, had sort of foundered when uh, when this rebellion started, and the men were all uh, going to the army and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and of course, Arredondo came in uh, with his occupying army and disturbed everything. So there's the school just stopped, uh, and and so she looks for somebody at, at age seven who would teach her to read. And uh, and finds uh, one of the prominent citizens <laughs> in San Antonio who agrees to do so. Um, but anyhow, uh, I'd concentrate on that 
aspect, namely the development of the characters and what they do, uh, rather than worrying about the future film and who's going to act in it. <laughs> and actually, I have no idea who could uh, take Maria's place, for instance. It would have to be somebody borrowed from a Mexican film, I think. Yeah, right. Uh, right. Yeah. And uh, I'm not uh, not too well versed in who's on the, on screen right now in uh, in Mexican film. Well, let me, so let uh, me good question, this. but I can't answer you. Yeah, well, let me. You know, again, I don't want to sidetrack you from what we're talking about, but uh, another you know point of curiosity more than anything is you, you know you were you were raised by a loving uh, family. You were the uh, the only child of of two loving, educated. <laughs> Uh, individuals who, uh, you know, who, you know, treated you so well, for you to be able to write for a character like Maria, I, I would, I would think that somewhere along the, the, the line, you may have had a reference point, or, or uh, you just completely created her out of your imagination. But there yeah, was, yes, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's just, I, I'm, I'm blown away. I could, I just can't do that, and I've. Uh, no, not, not that I've, I've tried very hard to do it, but I've tried. I, I can't do that, and that's a that's an unbelievable <laughs> gift to be able to do it. Uh, to, you know, it's one thing to base it on, on let, let's say it was a young lady that you knew or a young girl. Let's, you know, let's, let's say what it is, but a young girl uh, that you grew up with that maybe didn't have the advantages, and, and not that you were rich at by any means, but you did, you had that, that two-parent uh, household. Uh, you know, to, yes. to be able to write for someone like Maria, you know, or to create someone like Maria is just amazing. You know, just a, a, a amazing work there. Congratulations on that. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes, well, of course, I was born in Alamogordo, New Mexico. And Alamogordo is, uh, it was probably at least half uh, Indian, that is, people who, uh, whom we called Mexicans, even though they were fully American, had been born there. Um, but uh, I went to school with them um, briefly because I went to school in uh, Alamogordo only two years uh, because uh, the World War II broke out, and my, my dad uh, volunteered to go back into the Army. He'd been in the Air, Air Force, Air, yeah, Air Corps, Air Corps, I think it was, to begin with, uh, and uh, uh, and he uh, was going to officer school in Missouri, and then he uh, went to Fort Knox, and he went to Fort Belvoir, and uh, uh, in Virginia, and uh, so on, and we followed him, and I went to school in Kentucky, went uh, while he was at Fort Knox, and. Uh, and so forth. So uh, we wandered around the country, and of course that was an education as well. Uh, but I was uh, only briefly in contact with uh, with Mexican kids, and I, I was particularly fond of one Mexican boy. Uh, I was already interested in boys, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, but I uh, also knew a little Mexican girl, and these kids often went came to school barefoot. Uh, and and I envied their ability to to uh, walk over the roughest uh, ter terrain, rocky and and awful, um, with their bare feet, and never never wince or worry about it because their feet were so callous. So I mean, there are many details that I picked up from that, as well as picking up uh, some Spanish, which I didn't formally learn until I was in college, but uh, but it was it very easy for me to learn because I knew <clears throat> I knew the accents and the cadences and the pronunciation already even if I didn't know the grammar and a lot of the vocabulary so uh, I had a, a, an advantage that way in uh, in creating my characters because I did know a lot about uh, Hispanics and their ways and their ideas and their social hierarchies and all of that Wow, just yeah, just just once again, wow, uh, <laughs> I, to be able to uh, to to take that bit of knowledge and and turn uh, that into a you know very complicated character if you think about it. Uh, in in Maria, I'm I'm intrigued to hear where she goes 
uh, from there. But I, again, if you're just joining us, we're talking about Before the Alamo, which is the latest book by Dr. Florence Byham Weinberg. And uh, just, yeah, just, wow, just wonderful. And uh, just gripping every step of the way from the, uh, from the battle to the, to the quote-unquote love scene or uh, the, uh, the, uh, the interaction with the, uh, with the holy man, right? Holy man, with the, um, uh, the pastor, the minister, whatever, right? And, and, uh, and, and the judgment uh, that, uh, that he passes on uh, on her uh, undeserved judgment to call a rabble, right? To call a rabble to... Uh, yes, yes. Un- un- well, of course, she had broken a, a, a taboo, namely, uh, in those days, uh, the church was segregated, and uh, Indians and, uh, and mestizos uh, had to sit on the, uh, on the left side of the church. And the uh, Creoles and Spaniards were sitting, seated on the right side. Um, <laughs> so uh, she had broken uh, uh, broken the uh, the custom. The uh, uh, it wasn't a rule, but it was certainly the uh, known custom. And uh, so she was being punished for it. And uh, and Zambrano was a Spaniard, and he was a royalist. Uh, and uh, so he was on Arredondo's side uh, in the in the fight for independence, um, and and uh, also he was a very bad priest because he had uh, he had Indian and mestizo servants, uh, female, and had children by them, and uh, and also had uh, he had a business going. He owned cattle and uh, bred and sold cattle and was very wealthy. Um, <laughs> Which would be a no-no for a priest, I imagine. All exactly. Of all, of all of that was, <laughs> was not right for a priest. But Texas was far, far away, so uh, so the archbishop uh, was way down in Durango in Mexico, so uh, couldn't really ride herd on people like him. The characters, uh, even, you know, a, a character... And it's a complicated character there, and a dark character in a sense, uh, and and you know I guess every sense of the word. Uh, do you do you have a a fondness for writing uh, for for flawed uh, uh, you know characters like that? Uh, is it is it more enjoyable? Is it less enjoyable? I mean, Maria is a sympathetic char- character, and. And here you are, you know, writing about this priest who's who's not a sympathetic character. Uh, do you have a, right. have a preference in uh, in regards to all of uh, all of that? I mean, do you do you prefer creating Maria, uh, the priest, or do you just realize that w- without without the priest, Maria doesn't stand out as much? You need both of them to interact. <laughs> well, I I think I equal I enjoy equally because. It, it uh, exercises different uh, talents, different feelings. And by the way, Father Sambrano was a real person, and I'm basing him on what I know of the real man. Uh, he really, indeed, in history, uh, uh, owned and, uh, and uh, well, uh, conversed, <laughs> uh, sexually conversed with the uh, uh, with these uh, these servants of his who couldn't help themselves, they were under his orders and at his beck and call anyway. And so he had lots of uh, little nephews, quote unquote, running around uh, <laughs> the, the uh, church. The, the, uh, uh, where they, they, there is still a house uh, that belonged to him uh, on the on the main square there. So uh, the remnants thereof, and uh, and so on. I mean, he's he really was there, and so I didn't have to draw his character. Uh, I uh, I could read about him, and uh, many of the other people in this book are actual characters. The person who decides uh, that he's going to teach Emilia how to read um, is one of them, a real character. Uh, Jose Antonio Navarro, who was a hero uh, in the Texas Revolution, uh, because he signed, he was one of the signatories to the Texas uh, Constitution. 
and uh, uh, he was he was one of the uh, the ones he was a boy at the time when Arredondo uh, occupied uh, San Antonio, uh, but he and uh, and his whole family uh, almost all um, took refuge in uh, New Orleans. So uh, uh, so anyway, I I know a good deal about him and uh, many of the others who uh, are actors in this drama. <laughs> if, if he wrote uh, tech, or signed uh, Texas Constitution, he might be rolling in his grave watching what's happening <laughs> to, uh, to Oh, Texas oh, now. sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. He, <laughs> he would be horrified. Uh, he never took a law degree, but he, he studied to be a lawyer, and he probably knew most, more, more law than most lawyers. He was very brilliant. Uh, man and uh, uh, and a uh, mainstay in the early Texas uh, uh, legal um, goings on because uh, San Antonio was the biggest town in in Texas and acted as its capital and so um, uh, he was a big wig in Texas politics uh, from from start to finish from you know, just the earliest conception of this to uh, to finalizing it and editing it. Uh, how how lengthy a process was that for before the Alamo? It took a long time, actually, um, because I knew nothing, virtually nothing. I'm a New Mexican. I know more about New Mexico history, but uh, I had to study up on Texas history, and I did work in in the archive, as I said, archive and library at the Alamo uh, before the state took it over. And uh, there's an anecdote that I lived through myself, and that is that uh, when the state when the state took the uh, the administration of the Alamo away from the Daughters of the Republic of Texas. Uh, they changed the locks everywhere, and they locked the librarians and archivists out. And I was uh, I showed up to uh, do my research that morning when uh, all the, the uh, personnel of the archive and library were standing around bewildered because they couldn't get in to do their work. And uh, shortly after that, the state moved in and just seized everything that was in that building and carted it off. So for quite a long time, it was uh, unavailable to people like me. But fortunately, I had done most of my research, um, and uh, I could finish it off by going to the archdiocese and use their archive uh, to finish off certain things that I hadn't uh, hadn't. Uh, gotten access to, such as um, census uh, figures and that sort of thing, the actual census data from back then. Mm. So it took me from, uh, uh, I think I started in 2016, and I I finished the book, finished writing the book in 2019, then I tried to uh, publish it in in New York with a New York publisher like St. Martin's Press, for instance. And I was turned down because it was too local. They, they thought it would uh, it would not fly in, on the general market because it was about San Antonio. But I thought it would fly because uh, it includes the Alamo. Mm-hmm. And the Alamo is known all over the world because of the film. Uh, with John Wayne <laughs> and people like that. John Wayne, yes. And... Uh, uh, and so on. I mean, uh, of course, John Wayne was acting out of the mythology involved with the Alamo. Yeah, very, very uh, uh, inaccurate uh, as far as uh, historical oh, yeah. perspective. <laughs> you can't get much very. more. Right. <laughs> yes. I could do a whole program on the Alamo and the controversies over the Alamo. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so I spent three good years doing just doing research, and then I wrote the book and uh, tried to get it published and just have it's just come out now so from 2019 late in 2019 to now i've been uh, working on getting it to the public tremendous yeah it, a lot of boy, a lot of time and a lot of work to uh, to, to go into it's going to be a labor of love or, or you just would never get it done yes absolutely it has been a labor labor of love so 
Uh, yeah, and I, the next book is actually totally different because it's about um, uh, it's about uh, France and the uh, the wars of religion in France in the 16th century, and uh, so that's a, an absolutely different uh, context and everything else. So total change in my perspectives and concentration and research. Hmm. T- tremendous, yeah, tremendous work here. Uh, Before the Alamo, everyone, is the name of the book. Please get the book. It's a lot of work went into yes. it to get this. Yes, a lot of book. love. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of love. Those, those who have read it have liked it. <laughs> and it is available uh, at Amazon, of course, as an e-book. Uh, and so Kindle, if you have a Kindle, you can read it on your Kindle or any other device. Uh, it's also at Barnes & Noble and all the other bookstores. So, uh, And it's also a paperback, so you can have it for sixteen fifty. I believe we, we settled on that as its price, which is fairly cheap yeah, considering sure. what books are going for these days. Well, listen, just a wonderful, wonderful work. Uh, I want to thank you for sharing that. And, and just, I, wow, just... I. I I'm blown away by your stories. Every story I've ever heard, excerpts of everything that uh, that we're we're hearing aloud here uh, on uh, on on radio and uh, and uh, broadcast podcast, I, it just it just tremendous. What a tremendous talent, uh, Doc. Thank you very much for sharing. Well, thank you for letting me share. <laughs> well, uh, listen to everyone out there. Buy the damn book, please. Uh, before the Alamo, uh, what a what a wonderful, wonderful read it, it is. And uh, to everyone out there, you've been listening to Dr. Florence Byham Weinberg. And uh, please buy the book. It's her fifteenth. She's you know already working on her sixteenth and actually seventeenth. Her her autobiography is uh, is in the works. Her memoir is in the works, and uh, that's. Uh, uh, a fascinating story and from every step of the way but before the alamo is the name of the book and it's been our subject today uh, frank mckay signing off we'll see you all next time on the florence weinberg show